Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone, welcome back to Warfare. I'm your host James Rogers and it's been a big year for the podcast. Thanks to your suggestions, over the last 12 months we've investigated the history of the Red Devils, the Parachute Regiment, dug deep into the real reasons why the First World War began, revealed the global origins of the Irish Revolution and even charted our best and worst fighter jets throughout history all from your listener suggestions. So keep them coming in via email on warfare at historyhit.com or message me on Instagram or TikTok at James Rogers History. So this just leaves me to say a happy new year to you all, wherever you are around the world, from us at the Warfare team. And to send us off, we have one of my favourite episodes from 2022. It's Alex Wellerstein on the world's biggest nuclear bomb, the Tsar Bomber. Enjoy. Hi Alex, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, James. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you on the podcast. This has to be, if I had to choose a topic that I had to do podcasts on for the rest of my life, then surely it has to be nuclear bombs, nuclear strategy, and that core period of hot nuclear tension between the 1950s and the 1960s. I'm sure you're going to agree. Well, it's, it's a lot of what I do with my life. So it's exactly the rationale of what I study, what I study. It's, it's that it never gets boring. Okay, so I'm literally preaching to the choir here. That makes sense. So I think it's going to be a good conversation. I'm really excited for this one. Tell us where you are in the world to start with. So I am a uh, associate professor at the Stevens Institute of Technology. So I'm in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is just across the river from Manhattan. So think about Manhattan, and then it's a little town just visible on the other side of the river. I've read your work many times over the years, but I read your recent piece in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, that great publication that I think was established by, was it Stillard and Einstein and all that bunch during that period when they were very much looking for the idea of of one world or none, the idea that you had to put nuclear weapons in the control of of one supranational organization instead of allowing nuclear weapons to proliferate globally. Of course, they were unsuccessful in that bid and, and nuclear weapons did proliferate and we had the bipolar world that became the Cold War. And in your latest article, you call it an unearthly spectacle, this untold story of the world's biggest nuclear bomb. So take us back a little bit in 
history. Take us to that point at which the Soviet Union, at which Stalin gets the bomb. When does Truman learn about this? When does the Soviet Union turn the world into this bipolar world? When does it become the Cold War? You can almost think of the Cold War as starting uh, even before World War II ends, in a sense. You can see the lines coming about. You can see the tensions forming. And during World War II, before Hiroshima, Stalin knows about the American bomb project, though the Americans don't know that he knows this, which is, I think, an interesting dimension to it. And essentially, from Hiroshima onward, the Soviets are dedicated to their own bomb. And they're successful in building one in August of 1949, building and testing one. And this gets detected by the Americans in September 1949. And what they've done is they have specially outfitted bomber planes that are flying around the Northern Hemisphere, around the edges of the Soviet Union. There's some flying around England. There's some flying around uh, near Japan. And they have essentially filter paper that's being exposed to the air. And so you fly around for a while, then you go back down, you take the filter paper, you analyze it for radioactive contaminants. And if you get a hit, if there's something radioactive in there, you look a little deeper at what exactly it is. And you can see the signature of a fission weapon explosion by looking at this. So this is the way in which the United States becomes aware that the Soviets have succeeded after four years or so of actually making and detonating a weapon. Um, and this information is given to Truman immediately. And what I think is really amazing about this is that his first impulse is to not tell anybody. <laughs> his first impulse is, well, if, if, we, if we announce that the Soviet Union has nuclear weapons, that might do some, um, it might upset international markets, it might hurt the economy, it might scare people. Maybe we shouldn't tell them. And a lot of his advisors say, you know, if, if you don't announce this, they're going to announce it at some point. And if that's the case, then you're going to look like you don't know what you're doing. Whereas if you announce it, you can frame it, you can explain it. And they finally convince him to announce it based on the fear the Soviets were going to announce it. But interestingly, it's not clear the Soviets were going to announce it. They may have waited a while before proclaiming that they had nuclear weapons, if it had been up to them. But um, anyway, that's the situation. It's late 1949. And even those scientists, including like those who founded the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, even though those scientists have been saying for years that it'll only take five years or so for the Soviets to get a nuclear weapon, this is even before they know about the spying. You know, it'll only take that amount of time what happens is that they say this in 1945, it'll be five years. They say this in 1946, it'll be five years. They say this in 1947, it'll be five years. They say this in 1948, it'll be five years. And then in 1949, they say, oh my God, they were five years early, when really they were a little bit earlier than their predictions, maybe about a year. But it's not a surprise, but it is a shock. Well, this was August the 29th, 1949. This is first lightning, a 22 kiloton nuclear bomb that explodes in northern Kazakhstan. I mean, First of all, poor Kazakhstan. It's been the, the site of numerous nuclear tests. And I mean, bits of space debris falling from the sky throughout the entirety of the Cold War. You've you got to look up when you're walking through Kazakhstan. But tell me a little bit about how Truman then goes on to react to this. How does he frame in his very public statement 
the fact that, well, much of his efforts up to this point to try and create the United Nations that would have a UN military that would potentially be the holder of nuclear power and nuclear knowledge as an enforcer around the world to to knock fascism on the head, to take out any rising Hitlers that may appear, it kind of is a point of perhaps failure. It's a world-changing moment, and it truly is in terms of global politics if we look back now. So how does Truman frame this at this point? Well, what's interesting about Truman's own announcement of it, one is it's the sort of thing you would expect a a sober U.S. president to do, right? It sort of says, yes, yes, we've detected a thing. Don't worry, we have it under control. It's very boring. It's definitely not giant headline. Oh, my God, freak out, right? Even though that's, of course... There are giant headlines like that at the time. What's really interesting to me is that in this announcement, he doesn't say it's a nuclear weapon. He just says there's been a sort of nuclear explosion detected. And he leaves this deliberately vague. And even quite until after he was president, he would tell people he wasn't 100% sure that the Soviets actually had a bomb. He thought that it was maybe a reactor that exploded or an accident. And this is in spite of the scientists saying, you know, we could tell the difference, right? They, these don't look the same radiologically. There's a difference between a reactor that blows up and a bomb that blows up in the debris. And they, they can figure out quite a lot from the debris. They're able to figure out that it was a plutonium bomb. They were able to figure out the yield of the bomb. They're basically able to figure out that it was very similar to the bomb detonated in New Mexico, but Truman didn't really go with that. And I always like to point out that, I mean, Truman is the last American president to not have a college degree. Truman is not interested in science in the slightest. He does not care about scientists in the slightest. That's not his sort of way of thinking about the world. And it shows a bunch of many, many different ways. He doesn't really get involved with these kinds of technical discussions uh, very deeply, uh, as opposed to somebody like JFK, who often was involved, and even Eisenhower would be involved in really fine technical distinctions. And you just don't see that in Truman in the slightest. But uh, there's a there's a denial there almost. But the rest of the world immediately said, well, obviously, this is this is a nuclear weapon. Um, And the Soviets, interestingly, you know, they weren't really planning to announce this. And so what had happened is the Soviets had over the course of the 1940s occasionally said things like, there is no secret to the atomic bomb. We figured it all out. We are in possession of all we need to know to have nuclear weapons. And this had been dismissed somewhat in the West as being like, well, they don't really have a bomb yet. Like This is too early for them. What they did was they issued their own statement in reply to the Truman announcement that basically said, look, we told you that there's no secret. We told you, we've told you years ago that this was the case. So don't act surprised. Right. And they so they sort of confirmed and didn't confirm at the same time, um, which is kind of interesting. But yeah, Truman's initial response, again, is not to want to announce this, to keep it quiet. Once it's out there, he wants to sort of assert that they still have control. And that's not wrong. I mean, the Soviet Union had a single atomic bomb, which they detonated. For the moment, they have zero atomic bombs, as far as anybody knows. They are not yet a credible nuclear threat. And they're certainly not a credible nuclear threat against the continental United States. They don't have a means of getting a bomb over there yet. The United States at this point in 1949 has several hundred nuclear weapons and is just about to get to a stage where it's going to be able to start producing thousands of nuclear weapons a year. They've been expanding their weapons infrastructure program, things like that. But nonetheless, it's a sign that things have 
changed in an important way, even though it wasn't like the United States was lining up to start a new war with the Soviet Union even before they had nuclear weapons. The situation was still such that it was a cold war and the U.S. did not feel that it was capable of getting as much benefit out of that kind of war as it would cost it to do so. So in a sense, it doesn't change much immediately. It doesn't change the strategic situation overnight or anything like that. On the other hand, you can easily look at this and say, okay, in the next five to 10 years, things are going to get really different. So is it at this point we can say that this is the start of the nuclear arms race during the Cold War? Because it it most certainly played into the hands of a number of key strategically placed generals, such as General Curtis LeMay at Strategic Air Command, who were ripe and ready to take on the fact that the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons and they very much wanted the money to expand their own nuclear arsenals. So is it at this point we can say that the Cold War really begins and we start to see nuclear weapons shoot up from, first of all, a handful, then a few dozen. Then, like you say, we got to a point where it is a few hundred, but now we're going into the multiples of thousands. I would say the arms race starts at Hiroshima, if not earlier, because it takes multiples to race, right? Uh, And the Soviets are certainly racing. The US doesn't feel like it's in a race per se, but you're definitely entering to what historians sometimes call the era of nuclear plenty, as opposed to nuclear scarcity. So prior to about 1948, 1949, 1950, the US has nuclear weapons, but it doesn't have that many. It's quite slow to make them. And in fact, until about 1947, it has essentially no assembled nuclear weapons. It has some pits, some radioactive cores for nuclear weapons, but they're not put together. It would take weeks to actually field these things. It's much more like the World War II situation, except that the World War II situation was actually much more organized and heavily regulated and common mission, things like that. It takes some years after the uh, civilian organization, the Atomic Energy Commission takes over to sort of get the nuclear infrastructure in the US on a new post-war footing. And then they start to expand these plants for the production of the fissile material. That's what lets you dial up the weapons from you know three or four uh, a month to thousands upon thousands of years, a big shift that happens in that. And that's making more nuclear reactors, more enrichment facilities, getting a like dedicated facilities for assembling weapons. So you're not having these, I really love these pictures of the Manhattan Project people making the Trinity bomb and things, because it's these are like Nobel Prize winners, future Nobel Prize winners, making nuclear weapons by hand. These are like artisanal nuclear weapons, right? And they're putting on every little piece by hand. And that isn't scalable, uh, not to the size of the, the the arsenal that the U.S. wants to make. And so making the assembly lines where you can just pump these weapons out like sausages, that's sort of what the latter part of the 1940s ends up being. So that around 1950 or so, you can just start running and making more weapons. And then eventually, after 1950, different types of weapons, because all the weapons up until about 1950, they're all basically the Nagasaki bomb. They're like little improvements on the Nagasaki bomb. So there's this funny sense in which the US, there's almost like a stagnation almost. And it's not because the US doesn't want to make nuclear weapons. They are a little ambivalent about what the future is going to be. But it also is that this wartime program is not the same thing as the Cold War program, and it takes time to shift it over to what that's going to be. The Soviet detonation is certainly a catalyst for this change that's already happening, and it clarifies that. It clarifies, oh, 
we need a lot of bombs. We need to have way more of them. And then while we're at it, we're going to innovate on these weapons. And as you start innovating in the technological possibilities so that each weapon does not weigh five tons and have you know 20 kiloton output, you start to say, okay, what if we had a higher yield weapon, but it was smaller? What if we had a lower yield weapon, it was smaller? What if we made really big weapons? What if we made really small weapons? Hey, let's put a weapon on a missile. Let's put a weapon on a depth charge for a submarine. Let's put one on a torpedo. The sort of flowering in the mid to late 50s and early 60s of different types of delivery systems and different types of warheads. So it takes time. It's not sort of instantaneous. I think a lot of people sort of say the sort of shorthand version of this history is, okay, the bomb goes off at Hiroshima. And then like we're galloping and it's more like there's this period of uncertainty about till about 1947. That's when international control is sort of dead in the water. That's when civilian atomic energy commission takes over. And then you have this period of like infrastructure building and readjusting that lasts until about 1949, 1950. And then you get the period of, okay, we're in a real arms race. We need to have the real capability to actually fight nuclear war. It's not just about deterrence. It's also about if we go to war with these people, we want to be able to annihilate them. So does the Soviet first lightning test then lead to that that galvanizing, that, that running away at that point? Because it's not long after that you have the first hydrogen bomb tested by the US. I think 1952, this is Operation Mike. Is that what spurs on a pushing forward, a, a rapid ramping up of American nuclear engineering? So what happens is there's a lot of people who are sort of saying in 1949, okay, what do we do next? What are the next steps? Um, what is our reply to a nuclear Soviet Union? And for some of them, it's, well, we keep doing what we're doing. We're already building up this massive arsenal. That's the reply. You don't have to change anything. Um, but there were some who had been thinking about this possibility of the hydrogen bomb who said, no, no, that makes sense. Uh, let's have that be the way in which we reply to them. We'll go to another level. The, the way they phrase this is, as a quantum leap. These are all physicists, of course. And what they're referring to is, as a listener probably knows, but it's good to refresh, uh, in the Bohr model of the atom, electrons are only in distinct states, right? You're, you're at different energy levels, and there's no sort of in-between. And so you're going to a qualitatively different level. So this is the idea that hydrogen bomb is not like a, there's no transition between the fission bomb and the, and the thermonuclear bomb. You're just going to upgrade all the way up to the next level. And so this starts with Edward Teller, who had been thinking about thermonuclear weapons since 1942, since before the first atomic bomb was made. He had been really an enthusiast of this idea the whole time. He had been doing this work at Los Alamos during World War II, even though everybody knew that it wasn't going to contribute to World War II. But the idea was he wasn't going to work on the other projects anyway. And this was a good long-term sort of way to think. It had played a major role in these thinkings about international control, this idea of thermonuclear weapons. So this wasn't new. This, the idea that there was this whole other category of weaponry that they didn't really know how to make, but seemed possible where you'd use nuclear fusion reactions as well as nuclear fission reactions uh, was out there. And in 1949, Teller goes to another one of his sort of allies in the Atomic Energy Commission, Louis Strauss and sells him on the idea. And Louis Strauss gets sold on the idea. And so he really tries to sell it to several congressmen and to Truman and to the military that this is the correct response. And so this is happening all in secret in the fall of 1949, this sort of campaign to say, we should devote all of our resources to a sort of Manhattan Project-like project 
for building thermonuclear weapons. And there are people who resisted this very strongly too. Oppenheimer in particular did not want to do this. Fermi did not want to do this. There was a lot of these people who were veterans of the Manhattan Project who said, hey, I don't think the answer here is another secret weapon. I don't think the escalation is going to make things better. And they also argued that uh, these weapons were, uh, if you're talking about weapons in the millions of tons of TNT, these were inherently weapons of genocide. They could not be sort of targeted at military targets. Uh, and there were also a lot of technical arguments against devoting so many resources to trying to build this weapon. There's pretty complicated ones, but there's ways in which you sort of have the option of either making a lot of fission bombs or trying to make a few of these big hydrogen bombs. This is how they saw it at the time. And they would prefer to make just a lot of fission bombs. And this debate leaks out in November 1949 to the public and becomes a major sort of turning point in public discussion about which direction should things go. In the end, Truman feels obligated to authorize this program and does authorize a crash that they call the super program in February of 1950. And this does lead eventually to that detonation in 1952 of this 10 megaton weapon Ivy Mike in the uh, Pacific uh, Ocean. So in terms of scale there, perhaps in comparison to Hiroshima, 10 megaton, what, what's the difference between that and perhaps Fat Man or Little Boy? So Fat Man is 20,000 tons of TNT, 20 kilotons. So that's enough. And Hiroshima is about the same, 15 or so. And that's enough to destroy, let's imagine if we had a map of Manhattan in front of us, that's enough to destroy sort of the like downtown Wall Street area, which would be terrible. There's a lot of people there. But, you know, northern Manhattan isn't going to even notice it. They're going to see a cloud in the horizon and hear a bang, right? Maybe there's some fallout issues, but it's not going to destroy, you know, midtown Manhattan. It's not going to destroy northern Manhattan. The other boroughs of New York City are fine. Here in Hoboken, I see it on the horizon. I'm horrified, but I'm probably fine unless the wind is blowing my direction. But I have time to, like, take shelter, that kind of thing. So, like, a Hiroshima or Nagasaki-style bomb will destroy the downtown of a modern urban city or a sort of moderate sized city, which is what Hiroshima and Nagasaki were in 1945. They were you know, cities of, of 250,000 people or so, not gigantic, right? A 10 megaton bomb destroys the entire New York City metro area, a bunch of Northern New Jersey, a bunch of Long Island. It's a very large weapon. It's much larger in scope. Hoboken to be just in the fireball. We're gone. We're, we're, we're vaporized. There are cities you've never heard of in New Jersey that have been destroyed by this detonation. Uh, the, the Staten Island is even uh, not maybe not totally destroyed, but but definitely affected. And it's pretty far away from the rest of New York City and things like that. So it's a much larger weapon. The 10 million tons of TNT is it's not linearly a thousand times more than 10 kilotons more than TNT in terms of its damage output because of the way in which damage scales, but it's pretty powerful. And so it's a significant change. It, it's a qualitatively and quantitatively different change. It's not, if you look at these differences, you can see why somebody like Fermi would say, this is a weapon of genocide. It's not, these are people who supported the bombing of Hiroshima because even though they destroyed this town, they felt like it. you could make the justification during World War II that sometimes you have to destroy an area of that big in order to hit the target you want or something like that. But your 10 megaton weapon is destroying entire metro areas, including their suburbs. That just seems like a way to kill people. And in terms of casualties, if you dropped a Hiroshima-style weapon onto lower Manhattan again, 
You probably could get up to 800,000 dead, which is extreme. That's because there's a lot of people there. Um, that's a lot more than Hiroshima because there's way more people, more densely packed in here. But if you drop a 10 megaton bomb here, you're talking about multi-millions dead and multi-millions injured uh, very easily. It's quite a difference in scale. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? The Oracle certainly operated, certainly gave many thousands these prophecies. And they were taken seriously in most cases. What can be discovered from lost civilizations? There was a lot of volcanic activity. And in one of these sites called Quiquilco actually got covered with volcanic flows. And the early archaeologists, they used dynamite, you know, to get at this archaeology. And was King Arthur actually real? Ambrosius is far less well known. It looks as if he has got a significant impact on the creation of the Arthur story itself. You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I could talk to you all day about the rationales for nuclear war at this point and the kind of debates between the RAND Corporation and people like Herman Kahn and their books on thermonuclear war and ideas between counterforce and countervalue hitting military targets or, or cities. And of course, those famous quotes by people at Strategic Air Command, that's the part of the US Air Force responsible for kind of offensive nuclear power. People like General Powers saying, you know, if there's two of us left and one of them, 
then we've won the war. And I remember going through the archives and reading how a later Kennedy advisor, Bill Kaufman, turns and says, well, you better hope that the ones that we have left, that one's a man and one's a woman, because that's how you're going to keep the world going and procreating. So this is the sort of rationale we're talking about. That's how you win a nuclear war. It doesn't sound like you're winning very much to me, to be perfectly honest. But this is the point that we start to reach in ridiculousness when we hit the late 1950s and the early 1960s, when we've gone from Truman through Eisenhower, Nixon, and into those early days of the Kennedy administration. And it's at this point, of course, that we see the test that we want to talk about in more detail today. And this is the testing of the Tsar bomber. So tell us, what point had we reached in this nuclear madness up to 1960, where it paved the foundations for the Soviet Union to test the biggest nuclear bomb there has ever been tested before or since. The idea that bigger is better, this is sort of Edward Teller's belief. This was a motivation of a lot of interest in these thermonuclear weapons. The idea that if the value of these weapons is to destroy things, to kill people, or simply to scare them, you can accomplish all three of these things more efficiently with these very large weapons than you can with lots of little weapons. This is the argument. And there's actually counter arguments to this as well. In some ways, at some tipping point, it's not true that one big bomb is better than a lot of smaller bombs. You can arrange the smaller bombs in a more efficient pattern if genocide is really what you're after, right? Like that you could do that. But either way, you can see that there's this sort of primitive idea that the bigger the bomb, the better the bomb. General Groves puts it in the 1940s that if the the Soviet Union is going to have nuclear weapons, then the United States needs to have the biggest, the best, and the most, right? Like that needs to be, and nothing else is acceptable. And so from this, this is even present again, even before Hiroshima, you have people like Teller entranced with the idea of the super. They're, They're already thinking before Hiroshima about 10 megaton bombs, about how great that would be. And they are even contemplating by 1944, so again, like a year before Hiroshima, 100 megaton bombs in the United States. They're already thinking about, yeah, we could do that. And they're one of the appealing aspects of the hydrogen bomb as they're imagining it is that it doesn't have a limit on its potential size. You can literally scale it up to be whatever you want. Um, this is a physics aspect. With a fission bomb, there's only so much fissionable material, fissile material that you can put in the sort of vicinity of itself before it becomes dangerous and could could self-detonate. But with fusion material, it's essentially inert until you have a fission explosion go off. And so you could have, in principle, as much of that as you wanted, and then only set it off whenever you want. And so well before the Tsar Bomba, the US had been contemplating weapons of the size. In the late 1950s, the US had a very vigorous program to try and develop a 60 megaton warhead that uh, the, the Strategic Air Command was very behind and, and at one point had it had it listed as one of their absolute you know, mandatory military requirements to have a 60 megaton warhead. The Eisenhower administration got involved in this and actually sort of turned it down, which is interesting. There were all sorts of issues about the morality of this. Um, this, this had all been happening in the late 1950s. There were even some plans in 1954 that Teller had for even larger weapons. He had an idea called the Sundial, which was a 10,000 megaton weapon. So 10 gigaton weapon, 10 billion tons of TNT. 
And uh, we don't have a lot of details on this because they didn't build it and it's not totally declassified, but this would be just a monstrously large weapon. Using the scaling rules for how much blast you can have for sort of weight of weapon that were developed around then, you're, you're talking about a weapon, the mass of the space shuttle or so, uh, just, a, just a ridiculously not clear how you would get it to a target, not clear what you would use it on. It's a weapon that if you detonate it at the right altitude, you could incinerate an area the size of France uh, or Texas, depending on your politics. And it's just a ridiculous thing. But this is the kind of thing that is floating around in the 1950s amongst these sort of weapons designers in the U.S. Um, and interestingly, it gets turned down by the military and by the uh, president. The Eisenhower Air Force declines to develop gigaton range nuclear weapons. And it's just find this remarkable. I mean, this is a weapon so large that the Eisenhower Air Force was like, that's too big. We don't want this. In part because they, I think, they imagine nuclear war as being winnable. They imagine it as something you can fight. And these weapons look like doomsday weapons. They, they look like giving up. <laughs> and so they, they end up not going this direction. Some of it gets just derailed because in 1958, the Soviet Union and the United States agree to a voluntary test moratorium where they stop testing nuclear weapons at all as a sort of arms control peace measure, slow things down a little bit measure. And in the US that results in basically diverting weapons scientists to other projects for those years, including peaceful projects and things like that. So you sort of get a halt. You can't do work on these big weapons without testing. And so that sort of puts a real halt in on it. So this is the sort of context in the US anyway, in which this is happening. And I just emphasize this to make it clear that the Soviets looking into these big weapons, they're not like, they're not perverse. I mean, any more perverse than the US, I guess you could say that way. This, this is a sentiment of these weapon scientists. In the Soviet Union at this time, they had been thinking also about bigger and bigger bombs. It's again, a sort of consequence of being able to do it. You have the technical possibility of making these big bombs. And so this is going to lead some people to pushing in that direction. They had a, a general who had been looking in the mid fifties at the possibility of uh, a 30 megaton bomb, which would just have been their, their normal H bomb just scaled up bigger, nothing special about it. And they had gotten fairly far along in this project before the general himself died. And that sort of derailed the project. He just unrelatedly died. Um, and then the test moratorium on all those things seemed to have also derailed the, the same way they did in the United States. And all they built for that bomb was the casing. They had built this giant casing for this bomb. So flash forward to um, around 1960, early 1961 or so, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, you have a new president, Kennedy. Khrushchev is now uh, running the Soviet Union very firmly. Khrushchev is sort of testing Kennedy at different times in different ways. Berlin is really the center of both of their attentions, though that's going to bleed out into places like Cuba and other sorts of issues. And Khrushchev really feels the need in this point to sort of be this assertive strong Soviet Union. The United States in this time period has put nuclear weapons all around the borders of the Soviet Union. So there are nuclear weapons, American nuclear weapons in the UK, in West Germany, in France, in Turkey, in Algeria, 
in, in islands off Japan, like Okinawa, South Korea. There's a whole map of these where it's just all the way around. They have bomber bases, and then they're also putting in these sort of short-range missiles, like the Jupiter missiles in Turkey and things like this. And the Soviet Union is feeling very hemmed in. The Soviet Union basically has almost no way to strike the United States itself. It can strike its allies. It's got lots of short-range nuclear missiles and reasonably ranged bombers, but it's very hard for it to imagine getting over Canada and hitting U.S. cities because the Americans have radars and are going to try to shoot them all down. They might get a couple through, but it's not the same kind of threat that the U.S. poses against the Soviet Union. They are just developing the first long-range missiles. They've had Sputnik in 1957. They are just starting to deploy those in 1961 or so. So they're in a very sort of tricky situation. We tend to see this as being like a period in which they're equal, that the Cold War is about like equals, but they are not at parity. They are not able to inflict the same damage on each other. That doesn't come until about the late 1960s. So in this period of sort of insecurity, the Khrushchev approach is to like be super tough and so one of the things he's going to do to be tough is to resume nuclear testing. He's going to re-enter into that. He's going to show them. And then he's talking with the scientists about what they could do. And from what it looks like, the scientists would say to him, they had been thinking about these big bombs that had been worked on earlier. And they said, hey, how about 100 megatons? We could take new weapons designs that they had been working on since uh, the late 1950s take that old casing of that old bomb that was only 30 megatons and turn it up to 100 megatons. And this would be a political statement about how powerful the Soviets were. They weren't second to anybody and also an overt threat, obviously. But it would also give them a chance to perfect some of their ideas about these H-bomb designs. This is not a standard H-bomb design. It's a scaling up to a regime they hadn't tried to do before. So that's the sort of overarching technical and political situation that leads to Khrushchev saying, yes, let's do 100 megaton bombs. So this is Khrushchev flexing his muscles. I never thought about it like this. I read the other day, someone was saying that in 20, 30, 40, 50 years time, President Kennedy will be forgotten in history because he's one of the most unsuccessful, short-lived presidents in US history. And it's only a kind of boomer generation, as they called it, that revered Kennedy for his playboy antics and everything else that Kennedy is famous for. But you think about that short period that he was in power before his assassination. And he had to deal with an awful lot of high pressure, high tense situations. And it takes someone with great resolve to not trigger a nuclear war at that point. Think of Berlin, think of Cuba, and think at this point where you have the Tsar bomber, the emperor bomb being tested. So take us through this test and perhaps Kennedy's reaction at this point as well. Because when are we talking about? We're talking 1961 and the largest bomb that has ever been tested. How, how, how big is this bomb? So the Soviets very quickly go to the work of manufacturing this weapon, which was remarkably fast. They, they made this prototype in about three months, which is very fast for a brand new design and even just one that requires all the material that it required. They decided not to test it at full power. The head Soviet H-bomb designer, Andrei Sakharov, made the argument that they should just test it at half power. And they had already been doing this. Their first H-bomb was tested at half power. The Soviets tended to test these things at about half power, whereas the US tended to often test at full power. And uh, you know you can make arguments either way, but, but Sakharov's rationale was people were already concerned about nuclear fallout. This was starting to become a big political issue in the early 1960s. You're starting to do things like uh, 
the baby tooth survey where you're collecting the, the baby teeth of children after they've fallen out, of course, and assaying them and seeing how much radioactive fallout is in them. And it's a significant amount and you can watch it going up every year. The more testing you do, the more fallout you get. And so Zakharov's rationale is we don't need to add another 50 megatons of fission products into the atmosphere. We can set it up so this is a very clean bomb in the sense that it's only going to have about a megaton and a half of fission. And then all the rest is from fusion. Fusion does not create nuclear fallout, at least not the kind that they're worried about. And so they make this decision, they get it all ready. They test it at Novaya Zemlya, which is in the Arctic Circle, north of Russia. And this is sort of the- North of Russia, but on the European side of the Russian Arctic. So if you look up, you look to the Northern Sea Route and you look to the far east, and you look at places like Chukotcha, and you go out towards the Pacific Ocean, think of the complete opposite side of that, and far more towards Norway, Europe, and that entry into the North Atlantic. Yes, exactly. So it's north and northwest. And this is where the Soviets tended to test their big bombs. This is the equivalent for the Soviets that the US tested their big bombs in the Marshall Islands, the Pacific Ocean, the French tested in Polynesia. You sort of need these remoter places to test megaton range weapons. And so this is where they test those as opposed to Kazakhstan, which is where they test most of their smaller weapons. And uh, though they tested some pretty big weapons in Kazakhstan too. But uh, the idea is that it's, it's relatively remote. You're not going to worry about people having to displace them or anything like that. And the fallout hopefully will stay pretty far northernly anyway, where it's not hopefully going to sink too far south where more people are, things like that. So they test it as a, an airdrop. So they're actually dropping it out of an airplane, which is hard to do because the bomb is gigantic. It does not fit inside their biggest bombers. So you can see the footage of it and it's sort of hanging underneath the bomber and they detonate it at an altitude that it shouldn't create a lot of fallout. So it's if you detonate a nuclear weapon and the fireball mixes with dirt, the fission products, the really radioactive stuff, adhere to the dirt, and then that comes down as sort of fallout ash. So if you want a bomb that doesn't have a lot of fallout on the ground, what you do is one, reduce the fission content as much as possible. Fission is what's creating the, the really long-lived radioactive nasty things, long and short-lived. Um, and then secondly, detonate it high enough up that it's not mixing with anything or detonated underground. But it's hard to do that for very big bombs because you're digging a very deep hole and you don't want the stuff to come out of the hole. So they detonated at a height where the fireball sort of actually bounces off of the ground. It's pushed by its own blast wave, which is kind of amazing to watch uh, and doesn't really mix. And they have a bunch of planes that are surveying it and they take footage of it. They make a little movie, which you can watch. It's about 40 minutes long, which is meant for sort of Khrushchev and his buddies to see. Um, and, and one thing I would emphasize, that the fact that, that they were going to do this was announced before the test. So Khrushchev explicitly says to the Americans and to the world, we have the ability to do this. And then he says at the beginning of October, we're going to test this big bomb. We're going to do it by the end of the month. And so it's not like it comes out of nowhere. There's time for the United Nations to pass a resolution condemning it. There's time for editorial cartoons and people to say, please don't do this. This is pointless. There's time for the American White House and the Atomic Energy Commission to sort of make the case that this is not a real weapon that you would want to use. This is a political act. We should condemn this as barbarism and terrorism. This is not necessary. This is going to create a lot of fallout. It's a problem, et cetera, et cetera. So they do all this. Um, Khrushchev is okay with this, tested anyway. The scientists are basically content that it acted the way they wanted it to, et cetera. It's announced to the world, so on. Um, 
the Kennedy reaction to all this was first irritation that the Soviets were breaking the test ban at all, which they had already done, but that this was yet another problem for Kennedy to deal with. Um, the, the actual first reaction, according to one of his advisors, was, quote, unprintable. So it's probably him swearing, which is, you know, fine. And then it's to say, well, okay, well, if they're going to start testing, we're going to start testing. They were ready to start testing very small nuclear weapons. And Kennedy was a little unhappy about that because, you know, Soviets are saying, we're going to test the biggest bombs ever. And the U.S. reply is, we're going to test the bomb one-tenth the size of Hiroshima, right? It doesn't feel quite the same, but uh, it took some time to get together the idea of other bigger testing. But it's tactical. It's smaller. It can be stored in places where you can't detect it. I mean, it's like the nuclear backpacks that you could have deployed out into the Baltic should a Soviet wave come through, a way to degrade their vastly superior troop numbers. So it's a little insidious, it's a little cunning, and probably something that's a little bit scarier for Khrushchev and the Soviets. Well, maybe, but you can see the PR reaction of, of you can you see can, that this yeah. would look, be a hard sale that like, yes, we reply with this tiny little thing underground that barely shakes them out. And that's our reply to the biggest bomb ever made, right? Uh, but on the one hand, they're also trying to frame it like, look, it's not about the size of your bomb. They're trying to explain to people and put out a lot of sort of, uh, I hesitate to say propaganda, some of it's just information, but propaganda saying, this isn't the future. Big bombs, that was the early 1950s. That's when you're trying to threaten a big city. They're hard to use. They take a lot of material. The future is going to be missiles. The future is going to have lots of little bombs. The future is going to be uh, thousands of smaller bombs, which are still pretty large by any objective standard, right? You're still talking, that their idea of a smaller bomb is still 20 times the power of Hiroshima, right? So it's not like it's objectively small. And they're trying to sort of condition people not to just be impressed by these big bombs. The other reaction they have, and this is sort of an interesting one. So, so one of the reactions is to explain to people, and they issue a press statement that says, look, Anybody could make big bombs. This isn't that big of an innovation. We know how to do it. We have contemplated making bombs as big, and we have decided not to. We make these other kinds of bombs instead. The other reaction secretly is to say internally, well, maybe we should make one of these big bombs. Maybe we should look into this. There's a great memo that I love in my article, or it's a scientist from the Sandia National Laboratories briefing his colleagues. And he says that the military have come to him and they've said, yeah, maybe the Soviets figured out something about these big bombs that we haven't. Uh, maybe we should just have a few. We don't know what we'd use them for, but maybe we could have a hundred megaton bomb. Why not? And so there's these sort of two things, the public face, which says these bombs aren't that important, these big bombs. And then the private face, which says, I don't know. Maybe we should do this. Let's take a look. How hard would it be? How hard would it be for our scientists to make a bomb this big? Could we have one out there in like a month or two? What, what would it be? What would the cost be? How, how difficult? How much testing would we need to do? And so these two things are going on in parallel tracks, which I found really interesting. So take us through here. So we're saying that it perhaps only affects Kennedy in terms of his decision-making in a smaller way, although perhaps military decision-making a little bit more, well, it's a little bit more impactful, getting them worried about what type of bombs to focus on in the future. But what about in terms of the threats that Soviet Union faces to the United States? Because like you said, it was hard for the Soviet Union to target the mainland US, but was there a reasoning behind Khrushchev's decision to, or the military decision to detonate the Tsar bomber in the Arctic? Because there is this idea of a polar 
concept, isn't there? The idea that if the US is going to be at threat from the Soviet Union, it's going to come over from the Arctic. It's some of the shortest points of which you can go over the top of the world. It's harder to survey. It's harder to know what's coming over. It's going to come from the Arctic. That's where the threat is. Does this generate part of that fear? Or is this something that's already embedded? Is this something that, that scares American military and political thinkers? I mean, in general, the over the poles, I mean, because it is the shortest distance, is the way in which they're imagining attack, at least until the Soviets get better submarines, in which case you can attack from all sorts of angles. And, and later in the Cold War, in like the 70s and 80s, they start to get very worried about these what's called FOBs now, fractional orbital bombardment systems, where you're able to like basically put a satellite in orbit that then becomes a missile and you can approach from any direction at that point, which is a way to get around like missile defenses and things like this. And this is actually just to bring it together. There's a lot of fear that China is working on something like that right now. Some of that's already there. You know, what's interesting is that the official message of all of this, and a lot of it, like the White House level, is uh, these big bombs, they don't change a thing, which is always the US response initially, right? It doesn't change a thing. We're still in charge. We're still the biggest. We're still the best, et cetera. We have the most. And they would have a heck of a time getting a big bomb over here. Again, the bomb doesn't fit in the airplane, right? You can have ambitions, but there's only so far your fuel can take you with so a weight of a weapon, right? The big bombs are going to be a threat to the Europeans, maybe, but does it really change anything? They all, the Soviets already have the ability to bomb London into dust 50 times over. They have way more ability there than they do to hurt the United States. They've had that for a long time. So what's the difference if it's with one big bomb versus a bunch of small bombs? If anything, the big bomb is more favorable because you see a plane with a giant bomb strapped to its belly flying at you, you know where to aim, right? Whereas short-range missiles, a lot harder, right? It's a little bit different. But on the other hand, they also start to think, okay, well, what if they're building missiles? Could they build a missile that could fit a 50 megaton warhead? And the answer is maybe, yeah. And so the CIA actually for many years basically concludes that the Soviets are probably going to do that, that they're that they're making these super heavy missiles and they're probably going to put a 50 megaton warhead at least on one of them. And that could be an issue. And the reason you would do that would not be to destroy cities, though obviously 50 megatons would be a good city destroyer. The reason you do that is to destroy bunkers. So like the U.S., um, has a underground bunker in Raven Rock, which is basically under a mountain, which is meant to be like where the president and Congress and the military go hide in nuclear war. And how are you going to destroy a mountain? And the answer is you can destroy a mountain of 50 megatons, right? Especially if you got two of them, right? Like you, you one, two at the same spot, your mountain is gone, right? That's the kind of firepower you need to dig a hole like that. The, the, the blast radius for 50 megaton bomb is... Is, is massive. I mean, we're talking about something that's sort of on par with Mount Everest. I mean, it's a, it's a very large uh, uh, blast rate. So you could take out a mountain with a 50 megaton bomb. The Soviets don't end up doing that. It turns out that's like a very inefficient way to try to take out a mountain. Also, there's, there's easier ways to do all these things. Uh, but this is sort of a real fear within the CIA. I don't know if that fear was taken as seriously by the military or by the civilian government. But the intelligence people were always, for, for about three or four years after this, worried that this was going to be the case. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I get the sense that the Kennedy people, they didn't really know what to make of this. They didn't really know whether to see this as a real threat or not. And so they sort of hedged their bets. Publicly, they say it's not a real threat. Privately, they study it and study it and study it. 
Um, they did not end up building these big bombs. They did end up doing a program so that if they wanted to, they could test a very high yield, as they put it, a nuclear weapon within a couple months, within 90 days. Uh, and this gets the one thing which, which really changes the direction of the story, which I just want to throw out, which is one of the consequences. So the Soviets leave the, the test moratorium. They test a bunch. The U.S. also leaves. It tests a bunch. They both test, 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 test. You have the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis happens in the middle of all this testing. Um, you have the Berlin Wall going up in the middle of all this testing. Um, you have a sort of desire to step back from the brink occurring. You also have some people within the Soviet program, uh, notably Andrei Sakharov, who uh, are getting really disturbed by the fallout and the number of like potential long-term deaths that could be caused by it. You have people in the United States being popularly disturbed by the fallout. You have Europeans disturbed by the fallout. You're getting protests. And in this time, the Soviets end up going to the Americans and saying, hey, do you want to sign a treaty where we just won't test any bombs in the atmosphere anymore? We'll just only test underground. We'll still test, but we won't test uh, where fallout can get to people. This will also put a limit on the size of the bombs you can test. It's hard to test weapons that are a megaton or more. We can do it. We did it a couple of times, but it's it's much harder. Uh, it, it, it involves all sorts of seismological problems and very deep holes and a lot more prep than kiloton range bombs. So you're not going to be testing 50 megaton bombs if you're testing underground. And the U.S. and the Soviets had sort of used this idea of this kind of test ban for a while, but it was like just the right moment. The Soviets were willing to do it. They had just tested a bunch of new things. The U.S. was willing to do it. They had tested a bunch of new things. And this leads to the limited test ban treaty, partial test ban treaty, which goes through remarkably fast for what it does. And this sort of puts a halt to this big bomb development, except one of the ways in which the United States felt confident that the Soviets wouldn't break the limited test ban treaty was they had a program called readiness to test. Um, and the idea was, look, in, in 1961, you guys broke this moratorium and it took us a while to get back to testing. We weren't ready to test. So you had like half a year in which you could do all you want and we had to like catch up and we didn't like that. So here's the situation. We will be ready to test nuclear weapons immediately if you break this moratorium. We'll be ready to do all sorts of tests which would be useful to us and we'd learn a bunch of new things. So if you don't want us to learn these things, you'd better not test. There'll be a consequence. It won't be some debating. We'll just immediately swing into us. One of the readiness to test requirements was to be ready to test a weapon that was probably about 50 megatons in size. Um, and we'd be able to do that within 90 days. And so what we did, um, is we developed all of the infrastructure you would need to test such a weapon, except for the weapon itself. So we made these giant casings, uh, which don't fit into airplanes. They're too big. Um, and, we, they, and they made them so that you could, uh, and the firing sets and everything you'd need, and they would practice as if they were testing this weapon, but there'd be no warhead inside. So you'd have all the instrument cameras and everybody and the plane would go and drop the big bomb and you'd say, okay, now is when it would go off and you make sure that you can do all the readings. And then you'd say, congrats, good job, guys. And we continued doing that uh, into the early 1970s, basically fake testing big bombs on the idea that if the Soviets ever thought that we weren't going to do it, that you know, if they thought they could pull out of the treaty and there wouldn't be a consequence, then, then there would be. 
Uh, and in the end, we didn't end up using any of this stuff, but but uh, as for actual testing. But I think that's an interesting way in which that program and this idea of the big bombs was sort of kept alive, not so much as a we need this thing, but as a deterrent to the Soviets breaking the limited test ban treaty. All of this sounds fascinatingly Dr. Strangelove-esque, all the way down to kind of the mineshaft gap, the idea that you can blow up these mountains where you're going to have everyone into these deep bunkers, and maybe now you need deeper bunkers between bigger mountains to avoid having the Tsar bomber blowing up your gigantic mountain range. I mean, Kubrick definitely hit the nail on the head with that one. But it also, it's, it's interesting, because as we reach a renewed point of tensions between the United States and, and Russia in Ukraine at the moment, and of course, China in terms of a new arms race obtaining its nuclear delivery vehicles and its nuclear bombs, and the UK expanding its nuclear arsenal by 40%. I suppose my final question to you is, what lessons can we take from this saga of the Tsar bomber, from this period of history, to help us understand the current predicament that we find ourselves in? Well, there's a couple that I see, and I'm sure other people can see some as well. But one is that, you know, in the end, the world doesn't go in the direction of these big, big bombs. But that doesn't mean that they went in a direction of peace and disarmament, right? I mean, these bigger bombs, you know, these, especially these ones that were just in paper, these gigaton range bombs, they sound ridiculous. But the United States built an arsenal that if you added up all of the individual little bombs leads up to 10 gigatons or more. I mean, it's it's massive. And now it's probably about uh, two gigatons. We have, since the end of the Cold War gone down, but it's still ridiculous, right? To have these, these massive 2000 megaton arsenal. Like it, it's not that we renounced these things or even large explosives. It's that we, we felt comfortable spreading them out into lots of little explosives and making a sort of, you know, doomsday machine out of that instead of one giant bomb. There's a way in which the giant bomb, as in Dr. Strangelove, is a great metaphor for what's going on, uh, though the reality is, is sort of no less extreme in its own ways. Uh, and yeah, I agree. Dr. Strangelove is, is almost more accurate than, than not in retrospect. And it's, it's, it's not a coincidence. Uh, Kubrick did a lot of research for the movies and spent a lot of time reading the literature on arms theory and things like that, 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 that went into it. Um, but so that's, that's one aspect of it is, is that just, just if you don't not going the direction of the thing that's obvious and crazy, doesn't mean you're not doing something subtle and crazy. Uh, another approach is that when you look at some of these arms races in retrospect, you know, decades later, they do look just wasteful and dangerous and foolish. Right. And, I, I don't love arms races. Uh, I don't think you can race yourself out of an arms race, right? It, they, they don't stop by one person getting the best technology and then the other person saying, well, you got me. I'm stuck. I'm done. Um, and I feel like, I'm, at least in the United States, there's a lot of discourse along these lines. Well, all we have to do is get better nukes and then we'll have the Russians and the Chinese in the corner. And we know that if they put us in the corner, we would do everything we could, including very dangerous things, to get out of it. And uh, that's arguably what they've been doing. The, the, the Russians and the Chinese have not been doing all of this innovation because they were bored and didn't have other things to spend their money on. They were doing it because the U.S. was boxing them into a corner and they were feeling boxed into a corner. And now they feel that they have to do this to be respected and taken seriously. 
And uh, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it is the sort of consequence of arms races that don't stop. What, what stops arms races are essentially mutual agreements to stop them. Um, and if we're, and I don't know how you're going to get that at the moment. That's obviously very far from anybody's. That's not what the Russians or the Chinese are interested in at the moment, for for obvious reasons. Uh, and it's not really what the U.S. is all that interested in. Uh, so I don't see that happening immediately. But at some point, you're going to have to get to a place where we say, okay, we're going to agree on having this many missiles and this many defenses and this kind of missiles and not these kinds of missiles. And if we can come up with something where everybody feels safe and nobody feels like the other has an advantage, then we can sort of slow this down. And until then, we're going to spend an enormous amount of money and resources that we could be spending on a million other things at the moment. It's not like we're living in a world where there aren't other problems, right? Uh, and we're going to be spending them and spending them and spending them on these systems that if everything works as planned, will never be used right? We fail if these weapons ever get used. We will be just totally in a problem, biggest problems ever. So there's a way in which I am not saying that this is easy. And I'm not saying we all grab arms and sing Kumbaya and that'll fix it all and things like that. But if, if I, I really feel like we have to think about what the goal is and the goal cannot be we dominate everybody else until they give up. That's never going to happen. The goal has to be we reach a situation in which we feel safe enough to do what we want to do, and they feel safe enough to do what they want to do. And maybe we hope that their governments become nicer governments over time. But like, we're not going to like bully them into becoming democracies. It's not going to work anymore that they're going to bully us into becoming uh, totalitarian states or something. So to me, when I look at this Zarbamba period, I think, oh, what a waste. Like, imagine all the things that we all could have been doing in that time and that money and those resources of those people and our health and all these things. And in the end, it, it yeah, we didn't break out in a full war. Good for us. But like, what a low bar. You know, I, I, there's a way in which I get really depressed about the Cold War because people will say we won the Cold War. How did we win? We didn't have massive genocide. And like, oh, my God, what a low bar. And I agree. It was close to that happening. But like, come on, humanity, can we set the bar a little bit higher? Can, can we make it so we didn't kill 100 million people for no good reason is not the like biggest accomplishment of the late 20th century? Could we have other accomplishments, please? I don't know. That, that's sort of just my view. of it. I think you're right, Alex. One of the things that fascinates me is that as a human race, we've been able to develop these amazing feats of, of technical engineering. And it is an, it's an amazing achievement to be able to produce something so powerful that you can destroy entire countries. I mean, good for us in terms of the nuclear bombs that we, we can create. But the thing that we still need to work on is the diplomatic structures, the ability for us as human beings to create the international structures as well, to control that immense human power to destroy ourselves. And it's still touch and go as we look into the future about whether or not we're going to be able to continue to do that. But Alex, I know that everyone's going to want to learn more about this. So tell us, where can we read more about your work and about the Tsar Bomber? You can learn more about the Tsar Bomber from the article I wrote in the Bolton Atomic Scientist. You can find all of my writings at alexwellerstein.com for all your Alex Wellerstein needs. But you can also, I have a blog at nuclearsecrecy.com where I occasionally post things about what I'm working on and thinking about. If you would like to compare the sizes of nuclear weapons to each other, please visit my Nuke Map website where you can simulate nuclear detonations on any city in the world and see how many people would die, you know, at, at your heart's content. But um, easy to find. Well, I know how I'm going to spend my weekend. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.